Sharon Bordina joins me today to share her story of her first trip to Ukraine, a country that would eventually become her home. She has a deep love for the Slavic people and tells her firsthand stories of being displaced twice due to war in Ukraine. Sharon, tell me your story. I like beginnings, so let's start at the beginning. I was blessed to have grown up in a Christian home, so I I met Jesus um, at a very young age and just kind of always naturally had a heart that was drawn towards wanting people to know that Jesus loved them, you know, even at a a young age. Um, When I was 15, I had an opportunity to do uh, what was at that point uh, a ministry called Youth Attack that was being run through YWAM Montana at Lakeside. And Mariska was actually, uh, who was, she was engaged to keep at that time, leaders of this uh, ministry for high school students, uh, as well as the Pocines. So, so I had to be part of this youth attack and, and it was kind of like a mini DTS uh, for high school students in the summer. So we had a week, like a week of lecture phase on the campus. And then we took this big, crazy bus and drove it all the way down to Tijuana, Mexico, um, where we had our outreach. Um, So it was, it was, I was 15, first, first cross-cultural experience for me. And I have this vivid memory. um, You know, there's many things that were so impactful about that experience, but the memory that really uh, just stands out in my mind was um, encountering poverty for the first time in my life so close to one of the richest cities in the U.S., San Diego, you know, it's literally miles away from um, this village of people living in cardboard boxes and just whatever odds and ends that they could uh, put together. And I just remember feeling like this is what I want to do. I want my life, whatever I'm going to do with my life, I want it to be used in a way to help make these people's lives better and for them to know that Jesus loves them. Um, And it just, it just stayed with me through the rest of high school. And of course it was there that I learned about a discipleship training school. And so it kind of stayed in my mind that that was, that would be something I'd want to accomplish or what I would want to be part of after I graduated from high school. Um, So that experience, you know, was very, um, yeah, very important to what would, how my life would go. Uh, So I graduated from high school and sure enough, uh, I signed up for the winter DTS 1996, um, specifically the winter DTS because they had almost always gone to South America on outreach. And if I am truthful, I was very excited about doing something for Jesus, but if it could be in a, at least the outreach, if it could be somewhere with, that was warm in the winter with palm trees, white sandy beaches, you know, and handsome, dark haired men. Like I <laughs> thought that would be pretty awesome, you know, as an 18 year old. Um, <laughs> you can, I you love know, that. These are my, my true motivation. <laughs> I really did. I really did want to do my thing for Jesus, but I just had this great plan in mind to practice my Spanish in a beautiful, warm, place in South America in the winter months. So I'm from, I grew up in North Idaho. So, you know, winter is definitely um, very similar to what it's like there in Montana. Anyway, so that DTS um, changed my life. And um, one of the, you know, just, just, I encountered Jesus. I encountered Jesus on the campus there in Lakeside. And you know, and just the foundational 
themes of a DTS, hearing the voice of God, the father's heart of God, you know, all of those things were new, new topics for me. And so about halfway through our lecture phase, our speakers had this word of the Lord. And it was that we were not going to go to South America for our outreach. We were going to go to this place called Ukraine. And I was very certain that they had mixed up Ukraine for Uruguay because I was going to South America. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't even know where Ukraine was. I didn't have any desire to go to Europe. Um, and then, you know, I had I had studied Spanish for three years in high school. And here, here I understand they speak, you know, Russian or Ukrainian and I think I knew, you know, that vodka and borscht were two words that were sort of <laughs> part of that language, but that was as far as my education went, you know, and, um, and I was very upset, like there was a struggle in me, like, cause I had my plan mm -hmm. and it was South America in the winter. Right. And here suddenly, um, I'm faced with a completely different plan. And so just that struggle of, you know, sharing, would you lay down your rights, and trust that God is leading the leaders, you know? And, mm. and so I came to that place of, yes, God, I will trust. I will, I will lay down my plan and, and trust you with yours. And of course we know that's the right, you know, we know that God has a much greater idea and plans for our lives than we could ever come up with. But, um, but that was, that was part of that season is learning to trust the Lord. Um, at one, about a month before we left on outreach, one of, uh, the DTS leaders during a time of intercession, you know, came up to me and said, I have a word of the Lord for you. I was like, Oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> and, <laughs> and he says, I feel like, um, something's going to happen in Ukraine. That's going to change your life. And you're either going to want to stay there or you're going to want to come back again. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, no pressure there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. No there. What is, what is that? You know, what does that even mean? And, uh, but anyway, I can tell you that as soon as I said yes to Jesus about this new plan, I was all in and the Lord began to give me a love for the Slavic people before I'd even gotten on the airplane to, to go in that place. Like I just. I, I, I can honestly say I was in love with these people. Um, and there's just no reason why, but just, it was like the Lord just put in me a little bit of his heart for the people of Ukraine. Um, we landed in Kiev, uh, Ukraine at the water school international airport on March 25th, 1996. This is a day I remember every year because it was my 19th birthday. So we landed my first day on the territory of Ukraine happened to be on my 19th birthday. And, um, land, you know, you can imagine it had taken us forever to get there. So I had, I don't think I'd ever been so exhausted in my life and, and it was like nothing I had ever seen before. So, I mean, Ukraine had, was just coming out of the former Soviet Union. I remember feeling like, you know, okay, kind of like from the Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy's like, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. I was <laughs> like, okay, we're not in Idaho anymore. Like, this is crazy. I mean, the airport was like just a cement block. And you walked into the building, there was nowhere to sit um, and just it felt like very different. 
And we had to wait like six hours at the airport for whoever was coming to meet us to come there. Our team of 17 people from all over the world, I remember we just made a pile, like a mountain of our great big, huge 70 pound backpacks in the middle of the cement floor. And then we just all laid on top of them and slept for like four hours waiting for this team to come. And and, and then, you know, the, the, um, this youth pastor with some of his youth group came to meet us and we piled into a big bus and then made, started the, the drive um, to the town of Lutsk, Ukraine, which was about a five hour, five or six hour drive from the airport. And I just had this excitement in me. I'm like, oh my goodness, this, it's my birthday. I'm in Ukraine. And I look around and my entire uh, my entire team is just out cold, including my leaders is just me awake. And, and I just didn't want to miss anything, you know? So, um, I pulled out my pocketbook of Ukrainian language words and tried to, you know, get to know some of the youth group that was there. Didn't work very good. Um, so they took me to the interpreter and so introduced me to the interpreter and um, the next thing I knew, he wasn't interpreting anymore. And he and I just began to just to talk and get to know each other. And long story short, the interpreter's name was Ruslan Baradin, who has been my husband now for 21 years. <laughs> but I just, when I tell that story, yes, when I tell that story, I just always think that was really cool of God to gift me on my 19th birthday, um, not only a country and a people that I would fall in love with, but to meet the man that I would fall in love with, you know, and, mm. and that day really was the start of our love story. Oh, I love so, that so much. Katie, where would you like to go? For <laughs> <laughs> oh, Academy of um, extremes. It was, everything was opposite of all the creature comforts and, um, you know, just that I knew as, as an American growing up. And I think one mm. of the things that really uh, impacted me so much was this, this crisis of identity. You know, the Ukrainian people just coming out of communism and the Soviet Union, like basically when that ended, this lie was exposed. And so it created this huge vacuum of identity for, for a entire people group, you know, Ukrainians, Russians, all the entire former Soviet Union, like suddenly everything they had been proud of, everything that they thought was who they were as a nation, as a people group, it was exposed as a great big lie. And, and so, you know, the vulnerability of that was something that just struck me as really, you know, just gave me a heart for them and gave me compassion mm -hmm. for them. Also in the nineties, there was revival in Ukraine. I mean, we would have outreach, you know, out, uh, uh, evangelism, outdoor evangelism, and, and we would have hundreds and hundreds of people that would come and want to hear, you know, our testimonies, want to hear the story. And we saw so many people coming to Jesus. And again, as a 19 year old from North Idaho, I'd never experienced you know, a move of God like that and, and God using me, you know, as I would share the little story that I had up to that point of my life. Um, and it changed me, you know, I, I just, I just, I, I literally fell in love with the people of Ukraine. And I, and when I left, um, and I have to, a little side note here, the, the, the only way my parents would bless me to go on this outreach <laughs> in my gap year after high school is if I promised them I would come back and get a university education. So I had agreed to that. Um, 
So, you know, because if I had not agreed with that, I would have stayed just as this leader in my DTS had prophesied over me, but I had committed my, to my parents that I would go to university. Um, so I did, and I promptly decided to major in Eastern European studies with Russian as my language focus. <laughs> and I you go back every chance that I got I, every year, I would make trips back to Ukraine. And, um, and there, there's where my ministry started. Um, uh, and also, you know, from, from the time that Ruslan and I met until the time we finally got married was a five year long process. It took us a while to figure out how to make our long distance transatlantic, you know, relationship, cross-cultural relationship work. And this is, Mm -hmm. of course, this is email is just starting, you know, and have a cell phone, no social media. I mean, all of these things are just beginning to develop, you know, at that that time. Um, But, you know, through those four years of my college education, that um, heart and calling not only to missions, but to the Slavic world didn't diminish at all. And much to my parents' uh, dismay, because of course they desired that I would, you know, graduate from college, get a good, good paying job, you know, marry some nice American man and settle down, you know, close <laughs> to them. Um, but much to maybe their dismay, I graduated and I went straight back to, um, to actually the Crimean Peninsula of Ukraine um, and began a ministry there. Um, yeah. So, wow. So, you know, that's, it's a long process, but I would have to say, you know, just to, to finish that, that calling, it was, it really was even before I landed on Ukraine and it is not something logical. It is something that God just put in me and it didn't, it didn't change an ounce and it hasn't to this day. I still have an illogical, not, not, um, you know, I just, there's just this love for that people. They're my people. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's no reason for it. I don't have an ounce of Slavic blood in me that I'm aware of. Um, but I have a great love for the people of, of Ukraine and in the Slavic world. Yeah. And what was it like in your early years of marriage and ministry being in uh, Crimea? What, what did your life look mm-hmm. like there? Yeah. Well, um, so Ruslan and I, after we got married in 2001, and he had always been the interpreter for all of the DTS outreaches that Montana was sending in those days to Ukraine. Um, so everybody, I mean, all sorts of people knew him, you know, and he was like the wonder boy for YY Montana in those years, because <laughs> they all knew Ruslan. Um, you know, people that are still on the base, Isaac and Ladon and their boys, uh, the Briggs, um, the Masuchis, you know, there's there's several families still on campus there that knew Ruslan well in those days. And um, but he had never done a DTS himself. And so when we got married, um, we decided that we would do a DTS together as a married couple. And so we did that with YWAM in Kiev, um, had our outreach to Kyrgyzstan. And in that time, we were invited to be part of uh, a team of three couples that would pioneer a new new YWAM base in the Crimean Peninsula of Ukraine in the city of Simferopol. So um, we went down to start that work, to help start that work in January, I think it was, of 2003. Um, And in that that season in that, that first year of our marriage, the Lord had, um, had told us, you know, in kind of a miraculous way 
that our main focus would be ministering to families, um, which we thought was kind of weird because we'd been married a year at that point. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were the typical first year cross-cultural marriage. You know, I, I remember distinctly telling Ruslan, you know, when we were engaged, I wasn't overly emotional. I had read all these books on marriage. I wasn't bringing a lot of, you know, baggage into the relationship that we were just going to have a really easy time of things. And, and then I often say, I, I think I cried our first year of marriage more than I ever had in my entire life up to that point. <laughs> and went from thinking I was such a great person to thinking I was like the worst human being on planet earth. So, so it was, you know, it was rough just as it often is for newly married people, just learning, um, you know, just learning how to live together, learning how to be married together, learning how to communicate well, learning how to work together, um, learning how to embrace our differences and build on our similarities. So, you know, all of that was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And we, um, and in that, the Lord says, and by the way, even though right now it's not going so well, you're going to be ministering to families. Um, so that was, uh, you know, so in the process of helping to pioneer this YWAM base in Crimea, we began to learn about family ministry and, and that really was our main ministry focus in Crimea and, and continues to be uh, an area that we have a great heart for to this day. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And, and I guess, you know, long story short, we were in the Crimea for 11 years and along Mm -hmm. the way, both of our babies came along, uh, Gloria, who's our oldest, and she's now 17, and Emily is our youngest, and she is 15. Mm-hmm. And why did you have to leave? Yeah, so, you know, we are, you know, sometimes people refer to career missionaries, and I always find that kind of funny because I don't know that I signed up, you know, to be a career missionary, <laughs> um, but I don't think, but, but, you know, the way missions has been for us, um, I think we, we, Ruslan and I have known that we were called to ministry and, um, and YWAM is, is just, it's like our home within that, you know, YWAM is where I first encountered Ukraine. It's, it's the organization that brought Ruslan to the Lord. And, and so we have, you know, we have a great love for, for our mission. Um, and we never sensed that, that it was for a season of time. So we really recognize that we are, we're, we are ministers, um, missionaries for as until the Lord tells us differently, that's, that's what we're doing. So, and so we went into Crimea, very sure that this was where we were going to build our life, um, our home, you know, raise our children, potentially, um, meet our grandchildren. You know, we were in it for the long term, and we loved it down there. Loved it, loved it, loved it down there. Um, Yes, but in 2014, uh, during the Olympic Games uh, that were held in Sochi, Russia that year, um, there was a lot, there was a revolution going on in Western Ukraine. It's called the Maidan Revolution. And it, and it was about many things, but primarily about this issue of corruption that has been such a stronghold over Ukraine. Um, it was part of the country feeling strongly that we needed to strengthen our ties to the West and the, um, and also feeling that our, that the government at that time was being manipulated by its ties to Russia. Um, and, and so there, so revolution began and, and this revolution succeeded in overthrowing the sitting government at that time. Um, and, 
and it was, it was exciting. You know, it felt like this was the possibility for a new beginning for Ukraine to finally break three of the corruption, you know, that's just paralyzed it for so many years. Um, but in Crimea and, and Crimea is a very, has always been a very, um, you know, just the stronghold of communism um, never got completely broken there. And also it was the population down there was predominantly Russian. So the ties to Russia are much stronger down there. Um, and so, you know, it was what was happening in Kiev was just kind of no big deal down in Crimea. Um, but I remember thinking, um, I don't know, a month or so um, into, into 2014, like, you know, end of January, uh, as this was, everything was heating up, I remember thinking that if Russia was going to make a play, that they would do it in Crimea. Mm. Um, because nobody was looking down in our peninsula. They were, all the attention was up in the West and in Kiev. And because Crimea has that Russian, that Russian, that more of that Russian backed people, you know, group of people. And sure enough, on February uh, 27th, I believe it was, uh, we woke up to the news that the parliament building in Simferopol, Crimea, had been taken over by unmarked special forces team. Um, the parliament building was six bus stops from our home. And within with that news, we recognized that, um, yeah, I mean, we didn't, we didn't, we recognized that a conflict very well could be coming. And so about two hours later, my husband had the girls and I, they were six and eight at that time. Um, we were on the train uh, with another one of our missionary colleagues headed for this, the town of Ternopil, 24 hour train, train ride into mainland Ukraine. And our train was the last to leave under wow. Ukrainian um, authority. And, you know, within hours of leaving the peninsula, all the airports were shut down, the borders were shut down. And, and, and really, you know, we didn't know it at that point. Uh, my husband stayed behind. He came out um, a week, and, week or a week and a half later uh, with our dog and, you know, whatever was most important to take with us. But it was the beginning of the end of, our, of the life that we had known in Crimea. You know, in a day we lost... Um, the ability to do the ministry we'd been doing there. Almost the entire missionary community evacuated. Many of them were our dear, dear friends. Many of them we have not seen again, you know, in person. Um, and it, it began a season of being some of the first displaced Ukrainians and um, permanent resident of Ukraine um, to, to Ternopil. And yeah, so that was the reason that we left Crimea. And that was also the reason we came to YWAM Ternopil. Mm -hmm. Have you have, have you been back since? Yeah, and you know, um, I was when we arrived to Ternopil. Of course, nobody knew that mm -hmm. you know what happened in in the months and years after was going to happen. I was sure that we would be going back. Um, when I tell the story, I often tell people that I. My first couple months in Ternopil, I did not want to like the city. I didn't want to make any friends. I didn't want to do anything that would feel like we were putting roots down in that location because we were going back to Crimea and that was, that was all. I was not mm -hmm. open to any other, um, to any other conversations or possibilities because it was our home, you mm -hmm. know, that, that, I mean, we owned our house there, all, you know, all of our 
most precious belongings, you know, um, memorability of our family, you know, it was all in Crimea. But the longer, um, the longer time passed, you know, the more and more difficult it was to go back. And especially for me as an American, it was mm-hmm. very difficult to be able to go back. Um, but to answer your question, we did go, we were able to go back um, two times, once in 2000 and always get my dates mixed up. I think it was 2016 and then again in 2019, I believe it was. Um, the first time we went back to see if it would be possible to, to, to return. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the second time we went back to say goodbye. Wow. Um, and to, yeah. And did you, you know, leave that a bunch a of stuff there? Well, our home, all of our belongings, you know, and, and we were renting a house in Chernobyl that really didn't have the space, you know, and, and of course we didn't want to move if, you know, we, we, it it took us a while to understand we weren't, we weren't going home, Mm -hmm. that God was repositioning us to a new location. And, and FYI, I'm actually writing a book about this. Um, I hope to have it finished in the next four to six months and it will be Mm -hmm. the story of, um, you know, of coming out of, of being displaced from Crimea and, you know, all mm-hmm. the things, all the journey that God brought yeah. us on. Um, this experience was the hardest thing we had ever been through up until that point of our lives. Mm-hmm. It felt like a death, a death of our vision, a death of a dream, a death of our ability to choose to live where we were. Um, mm-hmm. And part of being displaced to Chernobyl, we, we went from a location where we were, we were the well-known, we were the seasoned, you know, missionaries with a great reputation and everybody knew us, you know, to a location where no one knew us and we had no reputation, you know, um, we went from a place where we were fluent that was Russian speaking and we were all fluent in Russian to a location that is Ukrainian speaking in a completely different culture. And, um, so it was, it was starting over except we didn't know we were going to start over. And so that, Mm. so it was, it it was going, walking through the grief and the loss and coming to that place where we can embrace something new that God was most definitely preparing for us. Mm -hmm. And then you tell us about setting up life and, and all the roots that you had in Ternopil. Yes. Well, I mentioned that I didn't want to like anything about Chernobyl um, because it's just, just, you know, it's silly. Um, But I think the fear was already in place that we wouldn't be able to go home. Um, But like it or not, people were so nice to us there. You know, there's so many people reached out to us, showed us wonderful hospitality. And so, of course, um, before we knew it, we were making new friends. Um, we were be- we were beginning to be engaged into this new community of people, um, and it was lovely. Our our children ma- made new friends there, and um, and it was lovely to see them engaging, you know, in the joys of those new friendships. Um, the YWAM base in Chernobyl was so gracious to us and so supportive. Um, they allowed us to begin to engage in ministry where we could, but didn't didn't um, make us, you know, force us to make any decisions about commitments. We could just be displaced and respond to opportunities for ministry as we could, as we tried to figure out what the future held. And so, 
uh, oh, you know, it's, I get the dates mixed up, but about um, two and a half years into our displacement, uh, we recognized that we needed to make a decision. Are we going back to Crimea? Are we staying here in Ternopil or are we going somewhere else? And, and for me, you know, as much as I liked Ternopil, you know, I recognized within the context of family ministry, you know, we could do what we did anywhere in the world. So mm-hmm. I really wanted to hear from God if we're staying in Ternopil, why? Why this place, you know, in, in, instead of anywhere else? And so uh, really the Lord showed us, you know, spoke very clearly to me in three different areas. Um, one of the things he convicted me of was um, that I'd actually been very close to any ideas of anything new from the Lord. I, I just was so determined that I was not going to give up, you know, not going back to Crimea felt like we were giving up on mm-hmm. our friendships and our community on our dreams for ministry in that location. And, and what God told me was, listen, you keep asking me to guide you, but really you're not even um, open to me, you know, to me telling, speaking anything, if it doesn't start with Crimea. And he showed me a picture of just having a completely closed posture. And, and then he showed me a picture of what it looks like when we have an open posture, like, and it's almost like somebody wants to give you a gift, but your, your arms are crossed over your chest, you know, in order to receive a gift, you have to reach out to receive it in, in that open posture, right? You are able to receive this thing that is being given to you. And, And so I felt like the Lord was saying, would you have an open posture that I might give you something precious? And within, and within my ability to be able to say yes, um, and that meant letting go of my dreams for Crimea, but saying yes to maybe a new dream that God wanted to give us. um, He introduced us to a beautiful location called the Carpathian Mountains. And the Carpathians are about 100 miles uh, from Ternopil. And, you know, if you've ever watched that movie um, called Heidi, you know, where Heidi is Mm -hmm. uh, up on the Swiss mountaintop, you know, with living with her grandpa. And, you know, there's these high alpine mountains or meadows, high alpine meadows and goats and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of what the Carpathians are like. It feels um, like you've gone back in history 100 years and it's just a very, very beautiful place. Mm-hmm. And we happened to go there on just a family, a little family getaway. Um, and, and, you know, one thing, you know, long story short, we um, ended up purchasing a little piece of land there. Uh, on just this incredibly breathtaking spot with a view of both of the, the, the two largest mountains in Ukraine, uh, mm-hmm. about a 20 minute drive from the largest ski resort in Eastern Europe. And we, as, as, um, as we get, began to pray into this, uh, like Lord, why Chernobyl? We felt like God said, I'm going to use you in this area of, um, pastoral care of member care. Um, we found a vision to develop this piece of property as a place for retreats within our mission as a place where, um, pastors and missionaries could go for a rest, um, in a place that we would offer debriefing, coaching, counseling, wherever needed. And so for us, within the context of serving within YWAM Chernobyl, this felt like a reason to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and eight and a half years later, we are still there. Mm-hmm. We've been full-time staff with YWAM Chernobyl um, since 2017, I think it is. Yeah. And so you have a home there that you've built 
Yes. Yeah. That's a whole story too. Um, you know, be, when we did identify that the Lord was going to um, keep us in Ternopil and we said yes to that, right away we understood, okay, well, we need to find something more permanent for our family. The, the, the um, kind of townhouse that we had rented, um, I rented it thinking we would live there for a year. So mm-hmm. it was, I mean, you know, praise God, there was many good things about it, but not a place that, you know, we would desire to live in for, I mean, as long as we did or any longer than we had to. Um, and so we felt like, um, we felt like the Lord really told us cause we thought, well, you know, could, should we buy a house? Should we build a house? We still owned our home down in Crimea. So that was the only means that we had of, if we could sell it, that would be the ability we could put towards um, buying something or building something. But we felt like the Lord said to build a house because in so doing, you would put roots down into this territory mm-hmm. because we had not been to this territory in the normal way. There wasn't a leaving and a cleaving as there usually is when you make a choice to move from somewhere and to move to somewhere. And so we felt like the Lord said in the process of building this house that it would bond us to the land. And, you know, building a house, like I can, I could, you know, I could fill a whole hour telling you all the stories, all the horror stories that I've heard of people <laughs> who tried to build houses in Ukraine. Um, so it wasn't like, you know, so many people tried to talk us out of it. Um, but we felt strongly that was what the Lord was saying. And it was one of the most amazing experiences we've ever had. Um, the provision of God, of the finances. Um, we were able to sell our house in Crimea, you know, um, at full price, over full price. Wow. Um, where many of our colleagues had had within 24 hours of listing it, whereas many of our colleagues who had houses far, far nicer than ours had had it on the market for more than a year and had zero interest in it. Um, you know, the Lord sent us a Christian, um, he said the, the contractor that we hired through just a, you know, a, a, a random, um, you know, we'd hired an attorney to help us through the process of paperwork and, and, you know, they specialize in um, like building kind of area. And so they're the ones that connected us to this contractor. Well, you know, we had a piece to hire this guy and it turned out that he was um, part of a church that was meeting in the basement of our YWAM building. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the connections, um, and, you know, we, we, we found a uh, architect, lovely lady, and the four of us dreamed together with her about what this house could look like. Like, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, we really didn't know it was going to be our dream house, but, um, but the process of thinking together as a family, like, how would we want this home to serve us? How would we want this home to serve others? And then get to watch that come about was so powerful. And, you know, the location the Lord brought us to where the land was, you know, it's just a beautiful little village just outside of Ternopil. And, and again, I really saw my grandchildren coming to visit me in that place. You know, it was, we built it with the intention of being there for the long term. We built it with the intention of it being a place to host, you know, large groups of people and, and that it would be a, um, a blessing, not only to our family, but to all the people that would would come through there as well wow yeah um and then into it two years ago by the way okay wow and then what has happened 
well, tell us about January this year and <laughs> let's start there. Um, so back in November, I began to get these messages from the States, you know, expressing concern if we were doing okay in Ukraine. And I asked my husband, is, is there something going on between Russia and Ukraine? Because nobody was talking about anything, you know, in our community there. Um, but I'm getting all these messages from the States. And so sure enough, Ruslan said, yes, you know, Russia is massing um, soldiers against, you know, along the Ukrainian border, something that they did every year. Um, so it wasn't like, you know, new to us, mm-hmm. but for whatever the reasons were, it was getting a lot of coverage, you know, in the States and really all the way up until the middle of January, I just was so, so certain that the media, the Western media was just writing this narrative that they were trying to make something where there wasn't anything, you know, out of the normal. Nobody in my circle of friends was talking about it. And when we did bring it up to people, they were like, ah, nothing's going to happen. My husband was very concerned, but he was literally the only person that I was talking to that felt uh, that felt that way. Um, so so I really didn't think about it much. It was just annoying because it we had um, starting in early December, uh, we um, had a team, a YWAM, out, a YWAM DTS outreach from, from YWAM Maui, as well as from YWAM Montana that were joining us. And so there was just many, many conversations um, about, you know, the, the situation in Ukraine, were we concerned, what, was, what is our evacuation protocol, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, you know, and also, uh, just for context, uh, Ruslan and I, as well as uh, Yaroslav Yahutin, um, have uh, taken over leadership of YWAM Chernobyl for um, back in 2019. Um, so we're now in this capacity of leading our base, you know, which is why we were getting so many of these, these uh, kind of conversations that were coming. Um, But the first week of December, the last week of November and the first little part of December, we um, had been in the Republic of Georgia uh, teaching in a DTS there. And so um, we timed it so when we came back into Kiev that we would be there to meet this YWAM Maui team, which was um, flying into Kiev. Um, But interesting, when Ruslan was coming through the border back into Kiev um, from Georgia, he, uh, he has both a Ukrainian passport as well as an American passport which he, he normally always enters in Ukraine, of course, on his Ukrainian passport. But he just felt at the last moment as he was reaching in to give his passport, you know, to the customs agent, he felt to enter in on his American passport. And he did it because this concern that Russia might attack was still very strong in him. And if that happened, he wanted to be sure that he was in country on the same passport as his family. He didn't even tell me this um, until, you know, later on he did, but, um, but that's what he did. So we came back back home to Ternopil, business as usual. Um, but in the middle of January, the American um, consulate made a, de- the State Department made a decision to begin evacuating non-essential personnel from the embassy in Kiev. And according to our base protocol, that was um, that was an event that if it should occur, that we would begin to reposition any of our DTS outreach teams. And so within, um, oh, within about two weeks of time, we repositioned more than 30 students. We repositioned the team from Maui, the team from Montana. We had another team from YWAM Nuremberg, I believe it was, uh, in Germany. 
that came and um, they moved from Kiev to Ternopil because they felt Ternopil was in a safer area. They stayed on for two weeks and then their leaders um, asked to reposition them. Um, we had many, <clears throat> several, three or four families from YWAM Kiev that had children that felt to reposition from Kiev to Ternopil um, just because again, closer proximity to the border in case there was you know, anything happening. You know, every day we would hear on the news that Russia was going to attack on such and such a day. And I just thought it was ridiculous. Like, why would Russia tell somebody when they're going <laughs> to invade another country? I'm like, this is dumb. You know, they're not going to invade. Like, there's no logical reason why Russia would invade. They don't even have to invade because just with the threat of invasion, they've already thrown this whole country into a state of chaos. You know, they've thrown YWAM into a state of chaos. Nobody is going to want to come with an outreach team to minister here with this threat, you know, of impending doom. Um, so, you know, it was making life very difficult. Uh, and then on February, oh, what was it? February 12th, um, my husband informed me that morning that he, you know, and we had been discussing it for weeks, but he pretty much let us know that we needed to go somewhere, the girls and I. He said, I don't, you know, whether it's take a vacation, go visit your mom in the States, but I just feel very strongly that you need to leave the country for a couple of weeks. If nothing happens, then you'll have a nice little, you know, rest somewhere. But if something does happen, I will know that you are in a safe place. Um, now, one of this, I, I did not, I want to say the girls and I did not desire to leave at all. Uh, one of the, uh, things I wanted to, to avoid at all costs is evacuating. Because, because of our experience of leaving Crimea in 2014, I, evacuation just felt like, it felt like we were abandoned. It felt like we were mm -hmm. abandoning our community. And I did not, especially as one of the base leaders of YWAM Chernobyl, I did not want my actions to be looked at as I'm leaving my people. I'm abandoning my people. I knew if I left under those kind of circumstances that it would um, you know, that there, it would communicate things that I did not have in my heart at all to communicate. But I also, as a wife, recognized that I needed to submit to my husband, and he is a trustworthy man who hears from the Lord. And so together, we just prayed that God would show us a way, you know, if it if if this was what God was saying, that I would feel a peace about it as my husband was. And um, and the very evening that we had to make this decision, I received a call from the States that my mom um, had some issues going on. My mom lives in an assisted living uh, community. She's in the later stages of Alzheimer's and, you know, that, that there was a situation that I needed to come and address. And so for me, that felt like, okay, we will go and visit my mother and see what is happening there. We're not evacuating. <laughs> um, we are going to leave to see my mom. Um, and, and that is what we did, but it was very quick. Um, we made the decision on the 13th. I had a Valentine's Day event that I had organized for the 14th and the 15th, we were on a train to Krakow, Poland. Uh, interestingly, we had felt not to fly out of Lviv. We had felt very much to fly out of Krakow. Um, Krakow is, you know, a half a day trip, whereas Lviv is a two hour trip. Um, we left without even having plane tickets in hand. Um, and we left very much feeling like, why are we doing this? Like, I knew that we needed to go see my mom, but, you know, I felt like I could plan that event, you know, for a future moment. Um, 
but but we just but we did go and we flew to the states arrived um and the next day the war started wow and yes and then many 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 things <laughs> um were put into movement from that moment on did the war start on the day that people had been saying that russia would invade on that day did it end up that way it yeah no it didn't mm-hmm. but um but you know that, and I, I don't know that you could actually know when when yeah. you know, when Putin's going to do anything. But mm-hmm. but you know, Intel, um, you know, Intel was, I guess, very much moving in that direction. And so mm-hmm. the powers that be, the leaders of the Western nations, I mean, they were convinced that Putin was going to attack. I can tell you that the vast majority of the 40 million people that live in Ukraine did not believe that that was going to happen. And Mm -hmm. they were shocked um, the day the bombs dropped on their cities. What does it feel like to be here again, but to watch a people that you have such a heart for suffering? And Mm. And then you yourselves be displaced and away from your home but know mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that others are as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, it's been a very difficult year for our family. Um, that is for sure. Uh, one of the things I recognized, you know, some of the things I recognized right away um, was that some of the areas that had been such a struggle for me during our first experience of being displaced back in 2014 were not issues at all in this experience. Um, and I was very, and I, I really, and I think that was true for all four of us because we've experienced this before. Um, there was a strength to go through this again, um, that, that we could tangibly feel. Um, and, and I was very, I was very thankful for that. And I felt, you know, I felt more equipped, um, to enter into whatever this journey was going to be because of that. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, especially the first month of the war, Katie, as you know, you were part of the, the team that I brought into Krakow and then some of them went into Ukraine, um, three weeks into the war. Um, and it felt like that first month, it just felt like this move of God. Like I've never Mm -hmm. experienced anything like, like that before. Like just, just what was happening, um, was amazing. And, and I remember thinking, you know, how, how, what a strange place it is to recognize and have to process horrors, like horrible, like you have never imagined before. Um, but also hope and the outpouring of hope um, and being part of the anointed help from a God who is, who never leaves us and who loves us, whether you know it or not. Like that was one of the most profound experiences that I had ever had before. Um, And I would say that is true till this day. Like I recognize that we are seeing some of the worst of humanity but we are also seeing some of the best of humanity mm-hmm. um, and the stories, you know, the stories of how God has 
uh, is it has touched people, has helped people, has comforted people, has connected people from all over the world that have come to be, you know, the help to the people of Ukraine in, in this moment of horrible that they're walking through. It has been profound. Um, and we've been part of that. Our family has been a little part of that. As you know, the girls and I uh, and my husband from, um, you know, early March through till the end to early May were um, part of uh, the, you know, be part of just the team of people that were working along the Polish-Ukrainian border serving the refugees coming over there, working in the Ukraine, the shelters for the Ukrainian people that were set up there. Um, that was a profound experience for all four of us, you know, especially for my daughters. That was amazing mm-hmm. to watch them engage. Amazing. Um, so amazing. <laughs> yes, it mm-hmm. really was. Um, we also had the opportunity to launch uh, a respite ministry in Krakow, Poland, as you know, and um, just, you know, my background, again, being family ministries, I am a trained debriefer, trained coach, you know, lots of experience as a family in family ministries. And I recognized right away that we just as we needed to mobilize, you know, uh, humanitarian aid and, and so many things, we also needed to mobilize our pastoral care people, our trauma counselors, because the level of emotional trauma, the impact of, you know, the psychological trauma because of this work was going to be significant. And so since, um, since early April, we have been running uh, respite packages in Krakow for our staff and volunteers, their five-day packages and their opportunities for them to come out to have a rest, um, to look at something and, and think about things besides the war for a few days. And then every day they have an opportunity to to sit with a trauma counselor and just, you know, to be able to process the impact of what they've experienced. And within that, uh, our hope is to fill them up a little bit as we send them back to the mm-hmm. front lines of the ministry that they're part of. Um, that's been an amazing, amazing ministry to be part of. It's still going on now. We've actually just finished our second uh, in-country, in-Ukraine respite retreat for our staff and volunteers. Um, um, they they just spent a week in the Carpathian Mountains with an incredible team of YWAM trauma counselors. Um, so that is that's been kind of the area that I have been a part of since the war started. Um, mainly here from here in the states. That the girls and I have made five trips over the Atlantic Ocean since February. <laughs> um, and when I say that, coming and going, so we've crossed the Atlantic five times. Um, uh, yeah, and and. And we were all able to go in back home to Ternopil in February, uh, sorry, in June for two weeks as a family, which was wonderful. But as you said, um, we have been displaced again here to the States. I'm very thankful that in our situation that we're displaced to my hometown. So it's an area that I have a, a place to live. We have community. It's a location with roots in it. Um, so, you know, we're very thankful for that. Um, but it has been very difficult in that this is not our home. This is my mm-hmm. homeland, but it's not our home. And of course, our heart is to be in our home in Chernobyl, ministering alongside, you know, our staff and volunteers. Um, 
but we have also recognized as parents, you know, we have, we do have two teenage daughters and our oldest is a senior this year. And, um, and they just need, we need to be in a place that is stable, a place where they can move into a new school year and for Gloria to her last school year and to finish well. And, and so, you know, I just was talking about this this morning to another friend, you know, if we just put all of the the fact that we wish we were home in Ukraine and we wish that this terrible war was not continuing on. If we can just put it kind of on a shelf and just not look over there, then we're actually doing really, really well here um, about as well as can be expected. Um, Mm. But yes, it's, it's hard. um, And we, we pray every day that this enemy would be defeated and that the war would, would end. Mm -hmm. Um. You had you had told the story about how Ruslan entered in on his American passport, and uh, mm-hmm. tell us why that was so significant now, knowing what you know. Thank you. Yes, I forgot to get back to that. Well, when the war started, um, one of the first things that the government of Ukraine did is um, they made it against the law for Ukraine for military age Ukrainian men. So that's between the ages of 18 and 60, um, that they could not leave the country, um, because, you know, they need to be available in case they're drafted, you know, to the, to the front to fight in this war. Um, so if Ruslan had been, had entered into Ukraine on his Ukrainian passport, he would not have been able to have left the country. <clears throat> and of course, our story would have been very dif- different. But because he was in country on his American passport, well, then he could come and go um, as he needs to, uh, even though his desire is to be in Ukraine. Um, but because we are a Ukrainian American family, obviously, you know, we are very thankful for this ability of him to be able to come and go as he needs to. But one of the big challenges for our family right now, one of the reasons why we are here in the States um, is because with an American passport, he can only be in Ukraine up to three months and then he has to leave for three months. So he can be in for a full three months and then he has to be out for a full three months and then he can go back for a full three months and then he has to be out for a full three months. And so it just makes it very challenging as a family to have any kind of continuity you know, in, in, in one place for very long especially as there's other things here in the States that, that we're dealing with and our girl, you know, my daughter's senior year and all that. Um, so he is currently, he came, he finished uh, his three month tour of duty, you might say mm-hmm. in Ternopil, Ukraine in the middle of September um, and is now ministering um, outside of the country for another three months. He's actually currently in Amsterdam, um, co-leading one of our DTS outreach teams one of the amazing miracles of God in this season of Ukraine being at war is um, we had thousands and thousands of people that came through our city and many of them stayed at our YWAM base and about 50 of those people stayed on as volunteers, um, all displaced Ukrainians, many of them young displaced Ukrainians. And so we felt to do a DTS um, and we've had a historic, one of the largest uh, DTSs um, that our base has ever had, you know, historically during wartime, um, 22 students, and they have split up into three different teams, two are ministering in different locations within Ukraine. And then one of them has come out of the country and is currently ministering in the Netherlands, Amsterdam, 
we'll be spending a little bit of time in Germany and then we'll be a month in Romania. And so Ruslan is getting to be one of the leaders of that team over this next month. You guys just don't ever stop. I love that so much about you. (laughs) You just keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What is happening today with the war? Well, um, in answer to your question, um, yeah, it's horrible, you know? Um, yeah, I often, it's, it's really difficult even to know how to respond to that question. Most people do not have a grid for what war is like. I mean, you know, praise God, we haven't ever been, we have, you know, for the past 70 years, we haven't had a conflict that has, you know, brought a whole country, you know, into a place of war. We've had, mm-hmm. you know, smaller conflicts, of course, but there has not been a, a war on Ukrainian soil of this magnitude since, uh, sorry, there hasn't been a, a, a conflict of this magnitude on European soil since World War II. Um, and, and so the only thing that I could even try to help people understand is, you know, just go watch a movie about World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's horrible. It, it, you know, this, this has, this is a, a historic, um, it's unprecedented. Um, it has displaced a unprecedented amount of people. They're saying more than 10 million Ukrainians have been displaced, whether it be internally or externally as a, um, as a result of this war. Um, and it has never, the world has never seen that, um, in such a short amount of time as we have seen, um, Russia continues to just uh, bombard and destroy, you know, beautiful, beautiful cities and locations around the country. Um, currently, it's focused more on um, trying on the eastern regions uh, of of Ukraine. So you've heard towns like Kharkov and Mariupol and Kherson. These are the areas that have just been um, so devastated. Uh, I think for me, one of the most heartbreaking parts of it is you know, when, when areas are liberated, um, and, and we've had some, Ukraine has had some great victories just within the past month and been able to liberate some very strategic areas that had been occupied. But when they're liberated, you begin to hear some of the stories. And because YWAM in Ukraine has teams in these different areas, you know, they're hearing stories and they are unspeakable. Some of these stories are a level of horrible that I just, I just, you know, it's like the worst that that an enemy who is intent on, you know, on the the greatest level of awful that is, those are the stories that are coming out of these locations. And it's, it's just so heartbreaking. Um, But at the same time, we also see, you know, God is at work. And that's where my hope is. I, I know, I, I do believe, um, that Ukraine is going to be victorious. I do not know how long it will be, and I do not know what the cost will be, um, but I believe we will be victorious. Um, and in between now and then, and in all of the years after, I do believe that we are going to experience God bringing life where there has been death, God bringing beauty out of the ashes, um, seeing people receive, you know, we're seeing many people come to the Lord in the areas where our teams are focusing in on, and because it's left us in a very vulnerable place as a nation. And um, so for me, that's where the hope is. But yes, this war is awful. Um, Russia in the last couple of weeks has acquired some Iranian drones and they are 
um, you know, the word, they're using the word kamikaze bombs. So they're basically in large numbers are taking out very strategic areas of Ukrainian infrastructure. And so far they've succeeded in taking it out about 30% of the energy, you know, the electricity, electrical grid for the country. And so this is a very concerning thing, especially as we're going into winter because many Ukrainians live in large apartment buildings where they don't have you know, the ability themselves to um, keep their spaces heated. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a lot of concerns as we go into winter, we are expecting in the West uh, an influx of refugees. I think that Europe is also expecting an influx of refugees and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very concerning. Mm-hmm. Sharon, you've told this story so beautifully and I just, um, I just love how relatable you are. And, and I think that that's kind of what struck me a lot during our time together in Poland is that we would be talking about war and difficult things. And, and you early on were like asking me questions about my story and, and you had, you had room for compassion for me there. And, and, you know, one, one minute Mm. at dinner, you know, when we were in Krakow, it would be, we were talking about, I don't know, makeup or something girly (laughs) (laughs) and then Mm. war in the same, at the same table, the the same meal. Mm -hmm. And, um, you're so relatable and yet you've done such amazing things. And I just know that your story is going to encourage people that you don't know what you're signing up for (laughs) always in life, but look at the tools that Mm -hmm. God has given you. And I just so respect you as a leader and as a mother and seeing how you have um, mothered and shepherded your, your two beautiful daughters through this process has really been amazing. Uh, I wish we could do a whole nother podcast on how you're raising your daughters. <laughs> and I have a special heart for sisters mm-hmm. and I love being around your daughters. Mm-hmm. They're such, um, oh. and then I, I just look at you and Ruslan and your relationship and then how you continue to minister. And, you know, even when I saw you a couple of weeks ago, you guys have so much mm-hmm. going on and then you're praying with me and it's just been mm-hmm. amazing to see your capacity and heart for so many people as, as your lives are unstable and in upheaval and that you continue to give, Mm -hmm. you guys are such a gift to people around you. And uh, Uh, thank you so much for sharing your heart for the people. I think today you have really helped people understand what is going on there and that this is, this just isn't, there are faces these people are doing going about life just as we mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Katie, so much. You know, um, as we finish here, I'll just tell you the three, um, the three secrets um, of this <laughs> past eight months that have mm. risen to the surface. One is um, holding on to Jesus, holding on tight to Jesus. Number two is recognizing that he holds our tomorrows and he is good and we can trust him. And number three is, even when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of the shadow of hard or whatever the valley is, he is with us. And wherever he is, there will be something good in that place. And so those are the three secrets that I have as we walk (laughs) through what is absolutely the hardest season of our lives. 
We don't know how the story will end. We don't know how that will impact the country that we love, let alone our own family. Um, but I really have felt a peace in just simply being able to say that Jesus holds our tomorrows mm. and we can trust him. That's so beautiful. Thank you, Sharon, so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Katie. I just yeah. loved spending this time with you this morning. I'm so happy to be able to share a bit of our story with you and your listeners. Mm.